0: Hello and welcome to another episode of SG Explain. I'm your host, Alec, and joining me today is none other uh, than the
1: wonderful Rove. Hey, Rove, how you doing, man? Hello, hello. I don't think it's a much of a surprise. I'm always here with you.
0: <laughs> of course, of course.
1: I, I, I was trying to be a good hype man there for a moment. But... <laughs> I appreciate the hype. Sometimes all of us need some hype.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, in this day and age, especially with news of like phase three maybe around the corner, I'm trying to get myself back into the like I can hang out eight people now. You know what that means, Rovic? You're back on the list.
1: Oh man, <laughs> I finally qualify Yeah, yeah. Yo. If, if I didn't make eight, wow, I would be so sad. <laughs>
0: I thought this week we would take that time to explore a little bit about Singapore's mercantile
1: history. We talk about Singapore's history a lot of times from the political, or maybe even some of the human interest stories. We forget that Singapore is birthed as a modern port city, and. That means that the merchantile history of Singapore, really how Singapore was doing trade, how Singapore was a source of prosperity for a lot of people and families in the region, that story kind of just gets taken as a given, right? So I'm very intrigued to know, actually, what did it take for prosperity to come to Singapore? Who were the people who actually were leaders in some of these trades and how did it look like for you to be successful
0: yeah and this is also early part of singapore's immigration history so a lot of these immigrant families who are coming from like the middle east from china from india this is the starting point for a lot of um, some of the rich families that still uh, you know have the legacy left behind in singapore so I thought we'd explore a little bit of that together today. We're going to open up and set this backdrop much earlier on. This is way before independence. We're looking at the early 1800s, 1819. Uh, to be very specific. And this was during the forced opening of China. This is the era of raffles, dude. Uh, way, way back in the day. Uh, and that's when the Chinese merchants began to move to Singapore from places like uh, Penang, uh, Malacca. So these two other territories that would be as administered with Singapore as the straight settlement from 1826 onwards. And uh, from the Qing Empire... Which is, which is quite crazy if you think about it. These are uh, people who were distantly coming into Singapore. The first junk from Xiamen arrived in Singapore in February 1821. And with the end of the Open War and the signing of the Treaty of Nanjing in 1842, uh, the Qing Empire was forced to open five new treaty ports, including Xiamen and Guangzhou, for international trade.
1: For a long time, the Qing Empire was actually opposed to international trade. So they focused a lot on domestic issues, but it was only after the Opium war where the British said, hey, because you lost, we're going to force you to open up trade so that you can sell to us and so that we can buy from you under unfavorable terms to the Chinese. But at the same time, that openness still created an opportunity for the more opportunistic merchants, right, to be able to do some stuff.
0: So those with business acumen or who had family businesses took that opportunity, the opening of uh, the ports to migrate to Singapore as merchants. This is where they settled down uh, for a new life and the easiest form of business would be import those Chinese goods or uh, export Malayan goods back to China. It's really like first mover advantage uh,
1: at the point in time. Yeah, I find it interesting because a lot of these narratives about trade still stand true, right? So Singapore continues to be a central place for trade today, uh, and it's largely touted as the place for East to meet West, right? So a lot of multinational companies from the US, from Europe, they set up shop in Singapore really to access not just Chinese market. In fact, the focus is kind of shifting to the Southeast Asian and maybe the wider asia pac market. And it's the same thing with vice versa. In fact, now the Chinese and the Japanese and a lot of Asian countries, Uh, also using Singapore as a springboard to enter into international markets because of their proximity to those places. If you've listened to the pre-colonial or even the Raffles episode, you'll know that this is a reality that was present even before Raffles came, even before independence, uh, and goes all the way back to just the geography of Singapore. So this is really endemic to who we are as a country trade openness and the moving of ideas and goods through our country is just part of our history and identity. We're going to
0: just start focusing on these individual stories and some of the merchants that make up who we are today. One of them, I think a lot of our listeners would recognize if you guys are a party going or like atas food type of people, uh, a man called Cha Anxiang. Okay. Uh, he arrived in Singapore in 1848. You know you know where Anxiang Hill is, right, Rovik? Yes,
1: of course.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all my favourite bars are Anxiang Hill. Um, so, he was one of the merchants who took advantage of the times and uh, was a wealthy Malacca-born Hokkien Chinese saw miller. That was what he was originally in, like his career choice. Uh, Cha Anxiang joined British firm the Bosted & Company, uh, now known as Bosted Singapore today, in 1848. Now, uh, the company traded in a lot of natural resources. So things like spices, uh, coconut, uh, tobacco, tin, tea, and so These were the hot commodities back in the day as well. I did some research and, you know, uh, this is uh, inherited from like the Silk Road times as well. <laughs> all your nat- all your natural commodities are always in favor when borders started opening up. Yeah, and its and ships uh, piled the China-Europe routes in the early days. Now, after 80 years on the job, Anxiang was promoted to chief produce storekeeper. He then retired in 1819 after over 40 years of service in the company and went into the timber business. This is when things start to get spicy.
1: (laughs) Was that a joke?
0: Okay, yeah, A little bit, a little bit. Yeah. Pardon my puns. He also became a partner of the firm, uh, Gyoktit and Company, in 1863. And after he became a wealthy landowner and one of the leading merchants of his time, he acquired both Anxiang Hill and Mount Erskine. Actually, before he bought the area, the hill was known as uh, Jemil's Hill after this guy called John Gemmel, who was a merchant and a former auctioneer. And before that, it was known as Scotts Hill, after its original owner, Charles Scott, who cultivated nutmegs and cloves
1: in the area. The reason why the land was owned by these, I imagine, European merchants was because when Raffles first took over, he was just giving away land to all his European friends or you know business contacts. And so it was only after those 40 years when Che Anxiang finally accrued a wealth on his own that was able to, to purchase that for himself. Uh, the second thing is, I found it funny that the original use of that hill was not and Close because there's a bar called Nutmeg Close. and Close. I just made that connection. So
0: <laughs> <laughs> The foot of the area between Anxiang Hill and Mount Erskine where Southbridge Road meets Neil Road and Tanjong Pagan was one of the earliest Cantonese Chinese burial grounds. Just more facts for you guys but the Chinese used to call this area Qing Shan Ting where the early Chinese immigrants who visited Anxiang Hill uh, when they wanted to send money home to their families in China. All these repentance houses Uh, where their letter writers, calligraphers had set up businesses at the five-foot way of the shop houses to help the illiterate immigrants write letters home. And most of the houses in Anxiang Hill and along Anxiang Road were built in 1903 and 1941.
1: It was once the traditional home of clan associations and exclusive social clubs, which for the most part can be pretty general, but actually it's also known for being the home for a lot of secret societies that were there. And in fact, the police had to do a lot of raids in that area. So Anxiang Hill has gone through a lot of history. This guy
0: had a diverse portfolio of uh, trade goods that he was dealing with in with at the point in time, but also the way he tried to innovate and use that land. We'll see some other merchants do the same thing, uh, but really have the interest of very specific uh, groups in mind. And it's the way they gave back to the community. In this case for Anxiang, it was uh, finding ways of connecting illiterate immigrants back to their home.
1: Uh, Let's jump to the next merchant. His name is Xia Chin, who arrived in Singapore in 1823. In fact, the well-known Xia Street was named after him. uh, And he was a local TO2 merchant Nicknamed the king of Gambier and the reason for this is because of his large plantations in Gambier and Pepper. Before becoming a businessman He was working his way up from a clerk and accountant to a trader and in less than 20 years He became one of the wealthiest Chinese in Singapore. He was appointed as a justice of the peace in 1867 regularly helping to settle disputes and conflicts between rival Chinese communities. Xia Yuqin was so influential that the local Chinese knew him as Emperor Xia.
0: Uh, xia Huangdi. So it's like, it's really like uh, Emperor Xia, like the direct
1: translation. <laughs> it's, it's a revered term. It's a revered term. It also shows the amount of respect this guy had, right? He also found the Nian Kongsi in 1830 to look after the welfare and religious matters of the local Teochew.
0: The Nian Kongsi is actually an association. I see that they've sponsored quite a number of things across Singapore. In NUS, one of the auditoriums is known as the Nian Kongsi Auditorium,
1: which is pretty cool if you ask me. The Nian Kongsi here looks like a charitable foundation that is governed by the Nian Kongsi Ordinance (laughs) of 1933. It is one of the Many overseas Chinese kongsi or clan associations that were set up by immigrants. Yeah, so a kongsi is basically a clan association.
0: It's basically like Ni'an kongsi. kongsi. Is, we usually say for like company or like a or like a just generally the word organization falls under that. Uh, but these guys, these guys are the the big sponsored dollar guys, you know, they come in for all things Chinese. The guy that we named Xia Street after, he uh, started one of the most influential charitable organizations. Uh, things from like libraries, NTU, I know has a lot of associations to Niang Kongsi as well. I've heard of the word Niang Kongsi for like the longest time, but I never knew it
1: was ingrained uh, this far down. Yeah, so Xia Yuchin helped run Seng Hospital when it was first set up. He was a member, and then in some years, he was the treasurer of its management committee. Just as the European merchant community used Chinese middlemen in conducting their business, the straight settlement government relied on prominent Chinese businessmen to act as go-betweens with the Chinese community. So actually, Xiao Chin, while doing a lot of business in Singapore, was also the go-between between the chiu Chu community, which originated from the Cha Chuo. Province of southern China. Chaozhou province. But that's where all the Teochews are from. He, he did a lot of work for the community. He rendered service in helping to quell several disturbances in the community, most notably the 1854 Hokkien Teochu riots, which broke out on 5th May, 1854. The incident ostensibly began because of a dispute over the price of rice between a Hokkien and a Teochew person, but that dispute probably was only a trigger for the release of long held resentment and animosity between the Hokkien which, you know, who come from the Fujian province in China, and the Teochew, who come from, as you mentioned, the Chao Chuo province. In this riot, over 400 people were killed over 10 days of violence. The British authorities had to meet with Chinese leaders, including Xiaoyue Chin, to represent Teochews and negotiate between Tan Kim Ching, who was representing the Hawkins. And it was only with the assistance of these two leaders that, they were able to bring the situation to a close so this really reminds me of how personality driven and how unstable things were back in the day right you didn't have institutions you didn't have much rule of law in fact a lot of it was led by strongman personalities like xia yuchin which also explains why, you know, you have so many streets named after people like that.
0: The thing that we have to learn from here is that merchants had so much respect from the community, like rich merchants who built themselves up from almost a literal nothing back in the day. Uh, And that's why a lot of them were appointed as justices of peace, because they were seen as arbitrators, people who had command and authority within uh, their own standing within their uh,
1: clans. Chin was an early member of the Singapore Chamber of Commerce, and he was also made a Justice of Peace in 1867, like we talked about. He was a member of the Grand Jury since 1851 and had cases involving Chinese referred to him by the court. He was also made an Honorary Police Magistrate in 1872, along with four other Chinese, including his own brother-in-law, Tan Sengpo. So, you know, all of this they recognized the influence he has over the chinese community and they were basically like okay like if there's a lot of these intra chinese issues let's just work it out with Xiaoyu Chin so that it doesn't blow up
0: i think the colonials back then even knew like hey if you want to dis- like do these intra chinese like disputes and solve them fairly without they saw a riot right with 400 people dead <laughs> we got to we got to include the leaders community leaders at the very least I thought we might shift the focus a little bit to talk about uh, an Indian immigrant uh, and merchant
1: who came to Singapore in 1819. This is uh, pre-SEKA, of course. For those who don't know, immigration has been happening pre-FDAs for a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
0: yes, yes, yes. Um, so this man in particular, there is a street up named after him as well. And this is Narayana Pillai. He arrived in Singapore with raffles, actually. They came uh, during the same time and they were pretty close confidence in a way, uh on the ship Indiana, making him one of the first Tamil men to set foot in Singapore itself. Uh he started his career uh on the Indiana as the chief clerk at the government treasury, where he verified the authenticity of currency. Uh, however, he soon moved on to become a successful entrepreneur and community leader in his own right. Now, what did he do? Noting the quick rate at which houses were being built, uh, Pillai started a brick clean uh, by Mount Erskine, so, you know, uh, Tanjong Paga itself. And he wrote to his friends in Penang for bricklayers, carpenters, and cloth merchants. And thus, he started Singapore's first brick company and became the first Indian building contractor in Singapore. Uh, Pillai also sold cotton goods at Cross Street and with the arrival of British merchants who allowed him to hold large large amounts of cloth on credit, uh, his bazaar became the largest and best known in Singapore. Unfortunately for him, in 1822, his bazaar was burnt to the ground in a fire that raised the entire area. He then had to persuade British merchants to let him repay them over five years. And all but this guy called John Morgan agreed. Uh, still within two years, Pillai got back on his feet, bounced back up, uh, Pillai's big comeback, and he was able to repay Morgan the $2,000 he owed. Now, $2,000 in 1819,
1: is an insane amount. Insane. Insane amount. Okay, that's... I think now you ask someone to repay $2,000, also they will scream and oh, shout. So hard, <laughs> la.
0: Oh, so hard lah. Oh, so hard. Don't ask me that for money, Rovick. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm not liquid. <laughs> so One of the things that Pillai had to do was that he sought Raffles' help uh, upon Raffles's return to Singapore, reminding him that it was he who had persuaded Pillai to come to Singapore. Now, in response, Raffles provided him with prime land in the city centre at Commercial Square. This is the important bit. Uh... He gave Pillai what we know as Raffles Place today.
1: Wow. That was a big power move, man. He just went to Raffles like, hey, you brought me here. Please take care of me. <laughs>
0: yeah, he's like, bro, you, you sold me the dream and now you're not taking responsibility. And then Raffles like, okay, you can get Commercial Square. Here you go, buddy. Pillai built his new uh godown here and started his business afresh. Um, Despite being impoverished, Pillai had a vision to build like a Hindu temple and paid some money for the land. So this is expansion at its finest. Uh, the original site for the temple was at Teluk Aya Street, but it didn't have the necessary fresh water required for rituals. Um, and a temporary spot by Stanford Canal was given in 1821 before the South Bridge Road site was confirmed in 1823. You want to guess which temple this is, dude? I'm
1: imagining South Bridge Road, this is the Sri Mariaman temple, right? It's the
0: Sri Mariaman temple, exactly. It's probably the iconic temple in Singapore. Like everyone knows it. it- Fun fact
1: that street, South Bridge Road, well- Sri Mariman Temple is. is also the site of a Chinese temple, so the Buddha to Relic Temple, as well as a mosque, Masjid Jame, which is a Chulia mosque with diverse architecture. So actually that whole street is super well-known in Singapore for being like, you know, the multi-religious, multicultural narrative, right? That's the street. Man.
0: I did not know, but this is the man uh, behind the idea of having the Sri Mariman Temple. and that's,
1: And that's now a national monument that's gathered. I think this is an important point about immigration as well, right? So we talked a bit how the Chinese community came through Singapore, which was a lot to do with the opening of the Chinese ports and, you know, just the forcing of internationalization after the Opium War. For the Indian community, a lot of it was because immigration within the civil service. So because the East India Company in India was basically running a lot of the show for trade in the area when they opened up a lot of these new areas in the straight settlement we need to have manpower for our administration here so let's just bring people from india who we've trained they'll bring them to the straight settlements and then they'll get them to work here so Pillai was one of those people who was working in india came to singapore and was working in the treasury and then that's when he said all right let me try something on my own and then he went out to become a merchant and to be an entrepreneur. So it's a very different take from how the Chinese community entered into Singapore. Uh, And it, it also kind of shapes exactly how people have connections right because the chinese community would not be able to make that same request from raffles but Pillai was able to you want to think
0: about interconnecting threads this is where a lot of these things start and it's it's hard to fathom you know like we take a lot of these things for granted these days so uh just nice to know the history of
1: it once in a while i think the next uh, set of merchants we're going to talk about is a father-son duo
0: yes oh i love this story this story is great uh lim ni sun and Lim Chongpang. Now, I know these two areas very well. I used to uh, always hang out in the Chongpang area. Uh, and only after cross-referencing the story, I was like, huh, wow, well, these guys both did very similar things. And then it hit me. Oh
1: my goodness. They're dead and son. So let's jump into it. Lim Nee Soon was a Singaporean-born Chinese. So he was born in Singapore in 1879. This is a while after a lot of the other merchants we've talked about. And he... His family was from Guangdong in China. His father died when he was still young and instead he was taught the ways of merchant trade by his maternal grandfather. Now, Nisun was English educated at SGI, St. Joseph's Institution, and ACS. So, Nisun and I are both old boys, man. We're alumni. <laughs> he's, your, he's, your, yeah, he's your alumni, dude. During this point in
0: time, you know, uh, their family... Remember, Nisun is first-gen. So, Lim Nisun is actually first-gen Singaporean. Um... And his parents or his grandparents had the foresight to say like, okay, things are going to shift. Maybe you need some English education. Let's put you in SGI and then into ACS. It, it actually sets up quite a fair bit uh, for how um, Nisun's career evolves over the years.
1: So Nisun was a rubber magnet and he was nicknamed the Pineapple King due to him being the leading pineapple planter in the region. We're seeing that this is a very common threader. Huh? So Xiaoyu Chin is the Gambier King and Lim Nisun is the pineapple king. Uh, Nisun was also a banker, contractor and general commission agent. He was the first general manager of the Bukit Sembawang Rubber Company in 1908. And like many other great men of his time, Nisun was also appointed as a justice of peace. For the community, he was one of the founders of Chinese High School and was a member of the Raffles College Committee. Chinese High is basically referring to now what we know as Hua Chong, right? And the Raffles College Committee refers to uh, places in NUS, essentially. Uh, So so he was very, very passionate about education. So the fun fact about Nissan was that he was a close friend of the Chinese Revolutionary and former President Sun Yat-sen. Now. How he died is an interesting story in itself. While Lim Ni Soon was on his home trip in China, he died, and his embalmed body was actually scheduled to be brought back to Singapore. However, the Chinese government actually requested to give him a state burial instead, and he was buried in Nanqing near the mausoleum of his good friend Dr. Sun. His story did not end there, he had a legacy. And that is the story of Lim Pang. Chongpang. Lim
0: Pang's father had made his name in the rubber industry. Uh, but by the 1930s, right, this particular industry was in decline in Singapore. Without much choice, right, Chongpang diversified the family business into other areas, notably uh, property and estate management. So this guy was pretty big brain. Uh, if you think about uh, this time, right, 1930s, we are... We are, we're still not close enough to independence yet, but whoever controls land and, you know, the idea of managing a state in a pre-ordered kind of like society, I think was very good foresight on his part. I mean, we can say that because we have hindsight lah, but... Quite a big brain play, if you ask me. Yeah. Um, the construction of like a British naval base uh, from 1923 to 1938, for example, uh, led to an influx of laborers into the Salita area, and Chompang himself saw a need for more residential space. That was that was his his play. Like if mm-hmm. he sees an influx of people, let's build houses because that's where we can earn some serious dough. Uh, he dropped small residential plots in like the old West Hill estate uh, with space for a hut in each plot and leased them out to laborers for 50 cents per month. Chompang was also involved in like municipal works around the area, including like the erection of a bridge over the Salita River uh, to facilitate communication between villages and the construction of the Sultan Theatre in 1939. Uh, it's not there anymore, don't bother. and as he felt the growing population of surrounding villages requiring some entertainment. Now, uh, we'll see this as a bit of a trend, but for Chong Pang, he really wanted the betterment of people's lives. Uh, and he took a particular interest in the media scene for some reason. Because um, after his father's death in 1938, Chong Pang took over the Apollo Theater in Yelang and renamed it Garrick Theater he also opened and managed a number of other theatres.
1: Yeah, it's very progressive of him.
0: It is, right? If you think about what everyone was trying to do back in, in those days, uh, entertainment, while, well, you know, it was an upcoming thing, we had nightlife and, and all that being built the, the boogie street eras think about it back then, uh, was, was still a thing. But to own and to spend your money investing in these properties, by no means was, is it a simple decision, like, if you ask me. I saw a few days before like, the Japanese invasion of Singapore in 1942, uh, Chong Pang's family was evacuated to Bangalore, India, where his son, Herbie Lim Ng Kwan, continued his education. Uh, Chong Pang himself continued working with his father's business interests, including the Thong Ait Company. And in 1945, he set up Southeast Asia Film Company. He set up a film company here. That's 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 his dedication to the craft and art, I suppose. I couldn't find a lot of information about uh, why he loved film or media so much. If you see a man spending a lot of money in the area, he's probably got some passion for it. And he was one of the more prominent business leaders in the industry. Known uh, for his outspokenness and fairness. He was a multiple term president of the Indian Motion Picture Distributors Association of Singapore and a board member of the Cinematograph Exhibitors Association of Singapore and the Federal. Of Malia.
1: I'm also starting to realize that this guy is a true Singaporean, man. He's like working with Indian communities, he's working with Malayan communities uh, and of course he has his Chinese heritage. And his time was so progressive that he was doing film and theatre. This guy is really a renaissance man of his time.
0: But aside from that, he was also a director of the Overseas Assurance Corporation, a company which his father had co-founded. In addition, he owned estates and property in both Singapore and Johor. He also sat on the committee of the Chinese Chamber of Commerce and was involved in efforts to support the cause of China in its war against Japan. Kind of like his father, he was an honorary treasurer of a special committee of the, and I love this part, of the Ole Ole Party. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, formed to assist the war fund. And he supported a lot of the local Chinese volunteering, like their uh, volunteers receiving military training for their war effort. Uh, Still very national. You can tell that this guy has heart. He's very nationalistic and he will do things for the people around him. I had to find something that could have been a crutch, right? Could have been uh, what we call the Hamasha, the fatal flaw. Uh, his his favorite thing to do was horse racing. <laughs> so wow. he was he was a gambling man, he was a gambling man. <laughs> and from nineteen forty-six all the way uh, till his death in nineteen fifty-six, so full ten years, his horses won more than a hundred races in both Singapore and he's an artist right? If you think about it, this is what arts people like
1: to do. But you can kinda see that Lim Chong Pang was basically in that middle ground where he was like, you know, I'm I wanna earn money, but I'm also happy to spend it. <laughs> so we've talked a bit about, you know, some Chinese families, some indian families but actually you know when people think about the malay community in singapore not everyone was actually from the malayan archipelago there were also arabic traders who came from the middle east of singapore and also contributed to the malay community here so in particular we're going to talk about a merchant called syed omar al-junit who's also famously known for the al-junit area in singapore he arrived in 1852 and he was a wealthy merchant and philanthropist who came right after Stanford Raffles set up a trading post. He contributed to the development of early Singapore with his philanthropy, such as the building of mosques, including the Masjid Omar Kampong Malacca, which still stands today. So the Aljunid family actually were traders in Palembang before setting up their base in Singapore, and they came from Yemen, the origin of many Arab traders who came to the Netherlands, East Indies, so basically to Indonesia to trade. Uh, Some of them had also decided to sell in the region. And so that's how Singapore came to focus for Syed Omar al-Junit. In Raffles' design of Singapore, he instructed for part of the town to be carved out for the Arab community, which became known as Arab Kampong. And this is where Syed Omar basically started to build a lot of his roots. By the mid-19th century, Syed Omar had become the principal Arab merchant of Singapore, and he was held in high regard because of his 1851 appointment as one of only two Asian members to work with leading European merchants to represent the Straits Settlement in an all-Empire industrial exhibition held in London in 1852. The other person is Tan Kim Singh, who if you remember from the conversation about Xiao Yuchin, he was the person leading the Hokkien community. Right. So so this guy, again, comes into prominence. During his long residence in Singapore, Said Omar established a wide and lucrative trade network that included Thailand, Chennai and Mumbai. With his wealth, Said Omar contributed to the welfare of the growing colony in Singapore. He donated land and built a mosque on Omar Road in Kampung Malacca, which was upkept by rent collected from the surrounding lands owned by the mosque. Placing the property as a wakaf, which is a public property, the mosque known as Masjid Omar Kampong Malaka, as we talked about today, still standing, has been open to anyone for prayer since his establishment. Another prominent gift is the burial ground that is on Victoria Street, which is now closed. It was earmarked for redevelopment by the URA, but this was part of his will that the larger plot of land between Victoria Street and Rochelle Canal to be a wakaf. For Muslim burial. Said Omar himself was laid to rest at a cemetery and it was subsequently referred to as the Said Omar burial ground. In 1927, the al started a religious school on Victoria Street near the cemetery, now known as Madrasa al Junid Al-Islamiyah, and boys enrolled to study the Arabic language and the Quran there. So, you know, the al have a lot of history in Singapore. I actually am friends with an al Her connection to the whole history and heritage is was a bit distant, but, you know, she's done her history to, to go find out. So Sai
0: Omar here actually did a lot for the community when you think about it, in particularly the Muslim community in Singapore. The early merchants, I think one of the, the best parts about it was um, it does come from a very, like, community-centric sort of, like, innovation and initiative. A lot of these guys were looking out for the people around them and that's what brought them to power and prominence. Not only were they smart in terms of trade and in terms of being, you know, like entrepreneurs, but they didn't stop just there.
1: Yeah, I, I have a question for you, Ali. Do you think if these people were to come to Singapore today, right, in today's Singapore, that they'd be just as welcome?
0: Oh, I I highly doubt it, dude. Like in our, in our world of globalization, when we see overseas you know like immigrants coming to set up shop in singapore it's like oh they you know that's business that we could have done right?
1: i guess i'll acknowledge that back then there weren't that many local populations right so almost everyone was an immigrant and everyone saw these strongman personalities as oh like actually this is a way for me to build up a home in singapore if i stand with this person if i follow this person actually he is giving back to the community, I can benefit from that, and all I need to do is to pay respect to him. right? So a lot of these merchants, they thrived on not just trade, but also political affiliation, so with the powers that be, as well as community strength. right? So by being leaders in the community, they were able to actually progress a lot of the solutions that needed to be introduced for their communities. So I think in Singapore today, We have a lot of these institutions in place. We have a lot of the local communities in place. And so when an immigrant comes in and says, like, I want to do something different, there's always a lot of resistance because they would prefer for things to rise from their own ranks. And this is a personal view, right? I don't think that fits in with the narrative of Singapore because we've always been an open country. We've always thrived from the ingenuity and the openness of the people who come to Singapore. So I think our immigration story is undergoing a massive relook. And that's important, right? We always need to ask ourselves, what's the value of immigration to a country? But at the same time, I fear that we hold standards that are very different from what used to be. And that will diminish a lot of the value that we can actually get from immigration.
0: Yeah, these these stories like just researching and reading through them, I thought they're very inspirational because it really is not just a rags to riches sort of position. It's a rags to riches, but I bring the people who are alongside me up as well. I try my best to uh, give back and, and help build a society that has given me a place that, you know, they relocated. Most of these people, they weren't thinking of making business here and going back home. They built it here, maintained relations with home, but made base camp in Singapore itself. There's a very long list that we could have gone through. And although, you know, we've, we've touched on some particular dates and points in history and some of the significance of their contributions, honestly, I think we barely scratched the surface. We probably touched like point something percent of like of, of what these people um, you know the backstories and the amount of research that involved I could probably write a thesis if I had the time and kind of end of this segment right we're going to do like a speed round <laughs> to kind of share with you some of the locations which you might be living on who knows uh, and that they're actually famous merchants who uh, they are named after. See if you can recognize any of them. Uh, before before we go into it, though, I would like to really thank uh, National Library Board. You guys provided some sick information on this. And uh, there's this blog uh, called Remembering Singapore. Now, they're the guys that advocate for like conservation. I have a few roads which I know of, and some of them might ring a bell briefly tell you their stories and then if you know any more, feel free to dm us on instagram or twitter or just like yeah just tweet it at us so that we know uh some more interesting stories that you guys might have the first one i know is lim tuatau road so lim tuatau road is uh it still it still exists today if i'm not mistaken at Gang, and um uh, it's a place where a lot of merchants still have their shops there like it's, the trade hasn't changed a lot. It's still very old school in feel. He's a Teochew landowner and merchant. Uh, then we have Lim Apin Road. So Lim Apin is a cool guy. Uh, he also has a name. Everyone was a king of something back in the day, right? This guy was a famous vermicelli manufacturer and he was known as the Bihun hoon King. Uh, what he did back to society was that after he made his fortune, he built a lot of houses in Upper Serangoon. The next one is this place called Belilios Road. It's named after this guy called I.R. Belalios, a Calcutta-born Indian merchant of Jewish descent who was in cattle trade along Serangoon River in the 1840s. Um, so, you know, there was a lot of booming cattle trade back in the day and we saw a rise of the number of roads that were used for said cattle trade. Hence, you might recognize Buffalo Road and Kabal Road. Uh, Kabal means uh, like cattle in Bahasa Melayu. So those roads are named specifically because, and uh, near Balidos Road, because of the fact that cattle trade was so rampant back in the eighteen forties.
1: I always wondered why we had a Buffalo Road, and this explains it. It
0: <laughs> explains a lot, right? Fraser Street, it's named after a man named John Fraser, who was a Scottish-born merchant who moved to Singapore in 1865. If this name ring- rings a bell, it's because you might have drank some soft drinks recently. Uh, Fraser is the guy who actually started with his best friend, uh, Neve FNN, Fraser Neef. Some of you guys might have been to places like Alkaf Manor and Alkaf Bridge so Alkaf Bridge near Clark Quayside uh, there used to be a place called Alkaf Key as well but uh, that place no longer exists and uh, this is actually in memory of the Alkaf family the guy who started it off is Syed Sheik bin Abdul Rahman Alkaf There's a story which I found a lot of information on but it was very difficult for you to process because they did so many diverse things as a family. Uh, and also at the end of the day, they were in like serious debt. So uh, it was a bit of a downer. And I, <laughs> I didn't want to go through that. Yeah. And lastly, this street, which I thought was a really cool story, uh, Solomon Street named after Mr. Abraham Solomon, uh, a merchant who came to Singapore in 1836 and is one of the earliest Jewish settlers. He was at the training office at Boat Quay and became a prominent figure in the local Jewish community. In fact, he took part in the construction of the first synagogue in Singapore uh, at the appropriately named street, uh, the Synagogue Street. <laughs> uh, however, the sad part is that he lost most of his fortune in opium speculation in his later years and he died in 1881, and was buried in the former Jewish cemetery in Orchard Road. And the reason I put this point here is because I did not know there was a Jewish cemetery at Orchard Road. And I didn't even know that we had a place called Synagogue Street. <laughs> and I didn't even know we had an active Jewish community so apologies to all my Jewish friends here
1: yeah apparently the Jewish community in Singapore is one of the most underrated features about Singaporean culture the only Jewish cemetery now is in Chu Kang
0: there is an Elliot Street and Elliot Walk but they are in no way related to me that's our non-exhaustive list and uh, what a journey it was what a journey it was honestly our merchant history is very rich and like I said we, we really barely scratched the surface uh, if you guys have any more stories and we would love to hear from you all as well uh, our instagram dms are always open you know you can always tweet at us stories are what make this podcast fun so uh, you guys can be a part of it as well
1: absolutely so we look forward to hearing from you definitely send us those dms and I guess till next week